Well, there isn't a legal definition, which is both a blessing and a curse. Mm. Um, uh, so if you asked me a year ago when I was running the Employee Ownership Association, I'd have said to you, employee ownership exists when everyone in a business is able to participate in some form of ownership of that business. And then collectively, the voice of that ownership comes to life in how the business takes decisions. Welcome to the podcast, Deb Oxley, OBE. Is that right? It is, yeah. That's this first. We've not had an OBE on (laughs) yet. So, uh, yeah, so welcome to the podcast. Somebody told me it stands for Others Bloody Efforts. Right, okay. As opposed to an MBE, which is My Bloody bloody Efforts. efforts. I'll let you judge that. OBE is one up from an MBE, though, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I was about to ask that, is it? OB is one above. Okay. Yeah. So what, what, out of interest, what did you, what was it for? What was the... Uh, for my work in employee ownership and okay. social enterprises. Excellent, uh, which we are going to get on to in a second. But I thought it'd be good just to get a bit of a, a potted history of yourself, if that's mm-hmm. all right, what you've, a bit of, you know, your CV, what have you been up to over the last few years? Okay, um, born in Hull okay. um, and proudly from Hull. Um, uh, worked locally, didn't go to university, right. uh, worked locally, joined what was the whole telephone department, which of course you all now know as KCOM, but I'm that okay. old that I joined when it was the whole telephone department. Um, then I went to university and did a bit of a part-time degree, which was uh, interesting and I guess opened my eyes to, I can probably do more than I was doing at the time. And then I just was in the right place at the right time. So, you know, I KC became KC and started developing into all sorts of other areas, IT, personal computing, mm. call centers, and I was lucky enough to be involved in a marketing sort of uh, manager capacity in some of those roles. Then I happened to come across a guy who was running uh, a new project in the city when the Hull was using a lot of regeneration funding to do some development work around the marina, um, mm. again, way back in the day, long before your time. Um, and I became a director of marketing for a, a partnership called City Image, which some some people will remember. Um, following that, I set my own business up with my then chief executive, and we worked around the country doing consultancy work around place, place development, place branding, marketing, leadership. Um, yep. And then following that, um, I ended up uh, coincidentally reconnecting with a business contact that I'd made in the city who had just uh, joined a national membership organization, which was trying to capitalize on some recent government changes uh, with a a big campaign, a national campaign to raise awareness of employee ownership. Okay. Um, And I joined at that point um, and that was 2012 and then uh, was with them for 10 years, six years as chief exec, and I stepped down last year. Okay, so employee ownership then. Mm. So I guess for the layman's listening, watching, describe what that is in simple terms. Um, Well, there isn't a legal definition, which is both a blessing and a curse. Mm. Um, uh, So if you asked me a year ago when I was running the Employee Ownership Association, I'd have said to you, Employee ownership exists when everyone in a business is able to participate in some form of ownership of that business. And then collectively, the voice of that ownership comes to life in how the business takes decisions. Okay. So that would be the definition that I would still subscribe Mm. to. So for example, a partnership, uh, for example, a legal partnership where you have a number of partners who are the, um, in effect, the equity owners, yeah. um, and then you have a number of people who work in the business but are not partners, wouldn't constitute employee ownership because not everybody in the business has the um, opportunity to participate in some form of ownership. So simplistically, it's when everybody can have a stake and everybody can have a say in that business. Okay. And practically then, does that what does that look like? Is that some sort of trust that gets set up? Well, it's it's got ultimate flexibility. Um, Again, there's probably two key ways of thinking about it. You can um, empower ownership through direct shares. So everybody in the business has the opportunity to participate in share ownership. And the the government offers some really tax advantage share schemes to do that. All employee share schemes. Mm. 
Um, but equally, to your point, you can instead invest the equity or have the equity held in a trust. Uh, the trust is a legal entity. The beneficiaries of the trust are all the employees. Hmm. Um, okay. And it can be 100% or it can be less than 100%. Um, and many businesses already use share schemes um, to, to do just that. And they might have a small amount of equity that's in the hands of all of the employees or everybody's given the opportunity. Mm. They might have some shares that are used just for executives for incentivizing you know, targets and recruitment and retention. And you can have a hybrid of all of those as well. So mm. you could have part of your equity in a trust, part of the equity in the hands of the senior leaders, part of the equity in a uh, like a warehouse trust where staff can buy and sell shares it's okay. an internal marketplace so that that's the kind of uh, the, the equity side of it but you mm -hmm. say that they also need to essentially have a have a say at the board table is that right in terms of the way the businesses run yeah not necessarily the board table okay. um the the premise it probably goes back to why you would do employee ownership mm. the, the reason why um, and many businesses that do this will cite this, is what most business owners want is everybody in the business to have the same passion for the business mm. that they have. They want people to have that sense of responsibility and loyalty to the business. So the best way to do that, arguably, and this is the case with employee ownership, is to give people a stake in the outcome. Mm. So if people have a stake in something, and they feel responsibility to it, what will happen is that they will display discretional effort, they will go the extra mile, they'll turn the lights off when they walk out of the room, they'll think about that 15 yeah. pound they're about to spend on a nice mm. fancy folder when they could probably get one for nine quid instead. They might try a little bit harder on a daily basis, on an ongoing basis. So if that's the why, what you're really trying to do is create a business of owners yeah. where everybody feels the same as you do on a Monday morning at seven o'clock when you jump out of bed and think, what am I going to achieve this week? Mm. If you're going to do that, incentivizing people just with a financial stake, mm, well, that's, that's helpful. But what most people really want to know is that they're valued and they're listened to. And, you know, the best way is to treat people as adults. So I have a really simple philosophy, which is there's very few things in life that are rocket science, apart from rocket science. <laughs> um, and actually, if you can get a group of people's ideas and thoughts together, and particularly the people who are doing the job on a daily basis, you'll probably get the best answers to problems mm. or the best solutions and ideas for new products and services. So giving them a say, as well as giving them a stake, gives you that perfect combination. Mm. And the way that comes to life is through things like employee councils or employee forums. And these are formalized structures where that group represents the voice of everybody across the business. So it's not everybody. You might you know, vote for your colleagues to sit on some sort of group that exists for a couple of years yeah. and that they feed uh, representative views maybe up to the board. Mm -hmm. To your point, Steve, some businesses do actually have employees at board level as well. And you know, recently corporate governance in the UK has changed and there's now a requirement on PLC boards to have the voice of employees heard at the board. Doesn't mean there's a board representative, sadly, in all cases. It sometimes means simply a non-exec okay. director is given that accountability. But many employer businesses do indeed have an employee representative at the board. Mm. Go on, go on. I was going to ask, could we put it into some context for, for anyone watching and listening that mm -hmm. might be in a similar boat to Spectrum, which is a private limited company yeah. um, where the, share, the shares are privately owned by a number of individuals. In our case, there's six individuals that collectively own 100% of the shares. Um, and, and that's probably, I'm just guessing, but probably the majority of our listener base because it's the majority of our customer base. Mm. Um, and so in in a in an instance like that where it is a private limited company, privately owned, um, how might it look for a business like ours if we were to um, somehow divest or whatever the right term is, a proportion of that equity? What, what actually needs to happen? So, well, first of all, SME... SMEs are the lifeblood of the UK economy. 99.9% .9 of businesses are SMEs. Mm. Um, and therefore, I'm not surprised most of the listeners and yeah. watchers are going to be in that space. And, and the reason many of them look at employee ownership is for succession planning. Some of them will look at it for growth planning as well, because obviously 
as I said earlier, if you empower people mm. with a level of equity, it can be a strong incentivizer mm. um, when you know you're trying to employ some sort of growth strategy in the business. But for those that are looking at it for a succession purpose, it's normally when the directors are reaching a certain age and thinking about what do they want to do next. And they maybe have thought about or explored a management buyout, and maybe that's just not on the table. They don't like the idea of a trade sale because it's out of their control. Um, so once you start a trade sale process, you probably, you know, you, you really, uh, the, the there's two parties involved then and it can get out of control. Um, it may happen too soon because you don't want that. You might start thinking about succession planning in your early 40s, but you've got no plans to retire till you're in your mid 50s. Um, they may want to, you know, perpetuate the brand beyond their existence so they're interested in leaving that legacy they'll have a strong probably a strong commitment to the locality and the place and they don't want the jobs to be ripped out of the area through a trade sale that could do that yep. um and they, they genuinely tend to feel quite a lot of um uh, strong sense of responsibility to their employees because most leaders know that it's not you as an individual that creates growth and success it's the team behind you mm. so there's some of the reasons why how you would go about that is um, you'd be looking normally to try and get some of that equity out of the hands of the existing shareholders into the hands of the employees. And to Steve's question earlier, you either do that indirectly through a trust or directly through share schemes. Yeah. So um, if it was through a trust, which is the most popular model at the moment because the government has created an incentive for business owners to do this, so if you create a special type of trust called an employee ownership trust or an EOT, it's often referred to, um, if you transfer, sell more than 50.1% of the equity of the business to the EOT, the sale is excluded from any capital gains tax. Okay. So it's a huge financial incentive for the current shareholders, but there's also a huge incentive for employees because through that trust, future bonuses can be paid up to £3,600 per person tax-free every yeah. year. So it's a really, it's a really, it's a win-win. It's a win for the uh, exiting owner or shareholders because they get a very tax-advantaged return for their investment. It's a win for the employees because they can benefit from tax-free bonuses. It's a win for the locality, the city, region, wherever that business is placed because the jobs will stay there. Yeah. It's a win for the economy because these businesses are proven to outperform their competitors because when people are given that responsibility, that stake, they do instinctively all just start to behave individually and collectively in a different way, in a much more responsible way. And so if just hypothetically, just to make the maths easy, a business is worth a million pounds, mm -hmm. does the employee, uh, the group of employees need to raise no. 500,000 or 510,000 no. to own, to buy no. out the outgoing shareholder? No, the, um, if, it's, if you're using an employee ownership trust, um, what would normally happen is the there would be a payment plan agreed with the exiting shareholders. Yep. The payments would actually come from the business. From the profits. So the, the business would either be using reserves, yep future profits it could even use some debt mm -hmm. or a combination of all of those yeah so for an owner where they've already built up some cash reserves within the business it gives them a a, a really uh, cost-effective way of managing their exit and recovering their value from yeah. the business without putting pressure on the business financially or it can be a combination mm -hmm. so you know many of the mainstream banks will now lend to employee ownership trusts. Well, they actually lend in technicalities, they'll lend into the business, so not to the trust. Yeah. Um, so it means the owner can leave on their terms. So nobody's pushing them out the door. Um, they can get a combination of return. So they might take some cash up front some and then they'll get deferred payments mm. over the following so years. So similar, in, in many ways, that's similar to how MBOs have worked in the past. But you're doing it to all employees. But to so yeah. An MBO, arguably, you're just kicking the can down the road, aren't mm. you? Because at some point, that next group of owners are going to have to make the same decision. Yeah. Whereas if you do it through an employee ownership trust, you've embedded that as a shared ownership. It doesn't change the leadership at that point in time. So, you know, the directors who are the directors stay the directors. They're still running the business. Mm. 
they may just not have the same level of shareholding because the shareholding will now have been moved into, in this case, an yep. employee ownership trust. Yeah, that makes sense. So there is a, that's interesting. And the cap, the tax um, benefit you said, mm-hmm. so they don't pay capital it, gains on up to 51%? No, they don't, well, they don't pay capital gains tax on any all. of the proceeds okay. of the revenue that they gain from selling whatever percentage, as long as it's more than yeah. 50.1%. So for, okay. to qualify for the tax gains, the EOT has the to have yeah 50.1%, which is of course a controlling interest. Mm. And the way, the way that that manifests itself in a governance perspective is the trust which owns the equity is a legal entity and has to have a board of trustees okay and so it is the board of trustees in effect who are representing the beneficiaries who are the employees and of course it's that trust which becomes the majority shareholder yeah so and usually for many privately owned businesses what you end up with then is the board of directors are reporting back to the trust yeah. So the trust becomes the yeah, majority the shareholder. Yeah. It's very common on that trust board, um, to your point about employees, to have one or two employee trustees. Mm. You might have um, at least one independent who's probably going to chair it. Um, I chair a couple of um, EOTs. Right. And um, it's highly likely there'll be a representative of the exit- exiting owners as well, all the while that they've got a financial interest. Yes. And so that um, controlling shareholder, which would be the trust, would benefit from any dividends that the company um, declares. Yeah. And with that, they would potentially be paying some deferred consideration or distribution amongst employees. Does that yeah, happen? Yeah, it's um, the deferred consideration would be paid through the company yeah. from reserves or future profits okay. or debt. Mm-hmm. Um, most trusts actually forfeit the dividend. So there isn't a need for the trust to have its own bank account. There's no. no accounting required. What happens is that you would logically see the board doing what the board does, which is running the business with their senior leadership team at the end of the year, declaring you know whatever the, 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 the profit after tax is, deciding what level of investment, reinvestment is going in the business and then looking to whatever is left to say that's what we're going to distribute to the employees. So it's not as straightforward as, well, we own 60% of the equity, therefore we get 60% of the dividend because most trusts will forfeit that dividend and the trustees will be working with the board to say what's fair and reasonable here Mm. in terms of sharing that money with the employee owners. Hi guys, just jumping in. I want to talk about one of the services we offer, which is robotic process automation, also known as RPA. That is software that replicates human behavior. So if you've got people downloading spreadsheets, attaching them to emails, going on portals, downloading information, moving data around, all that stuff is perfect for a robot. So if that's interesting, get in touch. Let's have a chat. Let's see if we can help. Enough from me. Back to the conversation. The employees would would get a dividend as long as the, prof- the business is making a profit and yeah, the board I, of directors just choose to yeah the most the- most businesses wouldn't call it a dividend they'd probably call it an ownership bonus right. for example okay. and it what it does is it it really brings to life i think for employee owners mm. the fact that it is their collective effort mm. that is creating the value in the business and that they will share in that value so they'll share that reward um they're also sharing in influence through some sort of employee council Mm. um or and could be representatives on that trust board Mm. so if you've got one or two employees direct employees and the non-director level on that trust board they can also have a voice through that way so it's a very powerful mechanism for hearing employee sentiment and opinions and ideas as long as it's a two-way flow of information and for businesses that many of whom many small businesses already feel like family-owned businesses you know they already feel like there's a very connected inclusive culture it's not a huge transition Mm. but it formalizes it and from a from an employee perspective particularly when an owner is getting to a certain age and a, a lot of owners are quite paternalistic so they will 
choose to avoid talking about succession because they don't want to upset the employees mm. when actually it works the reverse because mm. the employees start to think well you know Fred's now 67 when's he going to do something yeah. Yeah, are they going to sell are they not going to sell god I'm a bit worried mm. whereas actually if you make a big bold statement we are looking at succession and I'm hoping that I can move this business into the hands of all of you at some point that can be yeah, empowering yeah, yeah it can be really empowering it can also be really healthy for clients as well because particularly if you're a business that has long-term contracts with clients and they're looking at you know who the key leaders are in the business and what might their future plans be you can give some certainty to them that mm. you can sign up with us for three five years whatever happens doesn't matter whether i'm here or not this business is going to stay mm. because we're committed to doing this so when, when did the government introduce the the tax benefits around this is this 2000, recent or? 2014 okay yeah so, so, so there was a um, really. there was a big review done um in 2012 um called the nuttall review which okay. looked into what is employee ownership? What's its potential? How could it help the economy? And if you remember, we'd just come out of the crash of 2008 and there'd been some academic research done which showed that businesses that had full or partial employee ownership were far more resilient during the crash and recovered far quickly afterwards. So that information was used as part of the review. Uh, the coalition government, the Lib Dems and the, the Tories together, the Lib Dems were very um, committed to this idea of more in, a more inclusive economy. Mm. This is a phrase you, some of your listeners will have heard about. So it was under the, the coalition government that they introduced in 2014 the new Employee Ownership Trust. And the government has, subsequent governments have continued to support it. Um, and you know, if you if you say why, why are they interested in helping privately owned limited companies sustain themselves? Well, I think probably look at some of the big macro issues that we're facing. Productivity. So mm. productivity levels in the UK are still anemic. Mm. They're still way behind where they should be, uh, way behind where they were in 2008. We're behind the US, France, Germany. Um, the issue of leveling up and place prosperity is very high on the agenda so how do you create more vibrant regional economies outside of the big conurbations and the issue of wealth and income inequality you know it's evidenced lots that the more unequal a society is the bigger economic issues you have you have higher issues with health with crime you know with productivity so when you've got a small group of very rich people and the majority of people not as rich that's what I mean by inequality. Mm -hmm. Now, employee ownership, where you are sharing reward, you're sharing influence, you're creating more sustainable businesses that are highly resilient, more productive, um, are positive for everybody. They're positive for the economy at, at large, they're positive for regions, and they're very positive for the employees because mm. employees tend to, in employee business, have a higher earning potential because of the sharing of wealth through shared reward, yeah. through shared endeavour. What well, I guess, why haven't we seen more of it? Because the tax benefit seems really strong from, yeah. from my limited knowledge. Um, it's, it's still an issue of, simple issue of awareness. Okay. So um, this is something which um, has now been going for, what, nine years, um, the EOT. Employee ownership... Um, getting into the heads and into the ears of SMEs is a really difficult thing to do. So there was, every time a big business becomes employee owned, um, so you might have read about Richard Sounds, the uh, mm. retailer. So Julian Richard transferred 60% of his equity into an employee ownership trust, sold it into the trust. Um, he then rewarded all of the employees with a thousand pounds for every year that they'd worked there. So he right. told the employees about it and they didn't know anything about it. And when they walked out of the room, some of them had suddenly made 20,000 pounds because mm. they'd worked there for 20 years. So you can imagine the, the the mainstream media jumped on that and every single you know tabloid and broadsheet paper covered that. Once that happens, you suddenly get a, a, a flurry of awareness and more people start, more business owners start to inquire about it. Um, the, the key is to get more professional advisors to know about it. So more accountants and lawyers, but particularly accountants, because most SMEs will have an accountant. And yet it's still the case that many accountants don't really actively mm. um, introduce it as an idea. So when a, a business owner goes to their advisor and says, 
you know, I'm getting to an age where I'm thinking about succession and exit planning. They'll be told about management buyouts and they'll be offered an opportunity for, you know, pursuing a trade sale. How many of them are offered the opportunity to look at employee ownership? I'm not sure. Not I think it's still yeah. the case that less more than more do. The banks also are a route to um, unlocking some of the potential here. And it's not just banks, it's alternative funders. So, you know, in, in economies where you've got a more diverse marketplace of alternative patient funding, you get more vibrant, different business models come into play. Um, the banks have been constrained because of, you know, legal changes that happened after 2008, just because they're more risk averse. Um, uh, so you, you've got you've got not a, a perfect storm of there's a, still a lack of awareness and the financial environment is still not as vibrant as we would like it to be but it is getting much better you know mm. there's probably the employee ownership association the eoa which is a great resource for anybody who's interested in this um as as a as a concept and it's even better for people living in this region because the eoa's head offices are only at brough mm, um right. uh they will cite I think currently there are around in about 1500 employee owned businesses across the UK, but they are in every single sector of the economy. There's probably not a sector from retail, professional services, manufacturing, distribution, even space engineering mm. that hasn't got employee ownership in it. So there's, it's dead easy to go and find a business that looks like yours and to look at it and to learn from it and say, why did you do it and how did it work for you? But unfortunately, that takes a lot of effort. And the, but the EOA can help support businesses. Yeah. If it was at us, for instance, they could support us looking at other tech businesses that have done something Completely. similar. Completely. Yeah, I mean, that, that is their role. They're, yeah. they're not accountants. They're not lawyers. They're independent. Their role is to represent the sector, um, to lobby government, to continue to support the sector, um, to build the evidence base. So get all the data together about how many businesses are out there. They're currently undertaking a huge piece of work around the impact of employer-owned businesses, which will be incredibly valuable, particularly at a time when social impact, environmental impact are very important to how businesses behave. And there's a there's a feeling that these businesses will have a greater impact than yeah. than others in this space. So yeah, they're a they're a, they're a great resource for anybody who's interested. Employeeownership.co.uk is their website. I've got an awkward question, and that is, have you seen examples where it doesn't work or where it goes badly wrong? Um, no. Um, if I'm being absolutely honest, um, I'll tell you when it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work if a business's culture was very command and control. Mm. So if you're a business owner who has never let anybody else step up to the plate um, if you've just been very much do as I say um, and there's very little uh, engagement employee engagement there's very little sort of um, focus on employee ideas and voice you probably wouldn't do this no. you might try to do it for the wrong reasons as in the tax reasons alone but you wouldn't reap any of the benefits that I've talked about you know the discretional effort stuff doesn't come from people getting just extra money it comes mm. from people believing that they heard. have got a stake and yeah. they're being heard so there are some businesses that it just wouldn't sue mm -hmm. um, um, businesses where it has gone wrong I'm not sure I would call it going wrong um, I know of a couple of businesses who were employee owned through an employee ownership trust and then uh, it wasn't 100% and then an offer was made to the business to buy it um, and the offer was so good that the trustees took the view that it was too good not to say yes um, but the employee owners benefited because the yeah. proceeds of the sale were distributed evenly amongst them all and the business then joined a bigger business so was that a failure no no, no not really no. not really um, it's not the intention of course the intention no. is that you're creating um, and one of the people that I know from the sector, he'll know exactly who he is, um, wrote a book called The Eternal Business. Yes, and the longevity of it. Yes, yeah. it's about how do you sustain for the next generation and the generation after that, businesses, instead of this concept of a business can only survive whilst the founder is around, and after that they have to get sold off. Yeah. And once the trust exists, incoming and outgoing employees are just replaced, with it, but still within the trust, I guess. That is the beauty of it. Mm. Um, you you become a beneficiary of the trust, normally after you've done your probationary period in the business, 
when you leave, you leave. End yeah. of. There's mm. no selling. No, nobody no, no. owns shares in their own you name. Just, yeah, you sacrifice that or whatever, yeah. and then a, a new employee comes in. Yeah. And when they pass the probation, they're beneficiary become a beneficiary themselves. And the and the benefits of the trust are distributed equally amongst everybody. Mm. I mean, you probably pro rata it against you know bonus against somebody's working hours. Okay. <clears throat> but yeah. but it's but it's it's a universal you know inclusive set of benefits that and people. I'm, I'm assuming from. that that approach demonstrates um, or results in better retention of staff, of employees. Is the data that suggests that? Well, again, that's some of the data that the EOA yeah. is gathering this year. But um, uh, yes, you would hear that from lots of employer-owned businesses. Okay, me again, just jumping in to talk about one of the processes that we often get asked to automate, which is the processing of supplier invoices, also known as accounts payable automation. So what does that mean? Well, most businesses receive invoices from their suppliers and a lot of businesses still have people that are manually reviewing those invoices, making sure that they're correct, making sure they're accurate, and then manually reeking them into a finance system or an ERP system. Well, our solution can automate that process. So typically an invoice will come in, we'll use capture technology to understand what's on that invoice. We'll then match that data up against good receive note to make sure that we've received the product. We'll match it up against purchase order data to make sure that somebody has placed an order for that product. And ultimately, if we can match that up, we can automatically push that into an ERP system or finance system and nobody has to touch it. How good does that sound? If there are exceptions, if there are things that need to be checked, that's fine. We can use digital workflow to push that to somebody to eyeball it and say, is this correct or does something need to change? Ultimately, though, that can then be pushed again into an ERP system or a finance system. This is about making your life easier. It's about making operations as quick and as efficient as possible. And we do that all the time. If that sounds interesting, then get in touch. That's enough from me. Back to the podcast. A piece of research we did back in 2018 was called the Ownership Dividend. Um, you asked me about my OBE. That was the piece of work. In right. fact, I've got a copy here. That was very um, more anecdotal, more qualitative data. The EOA is trying to collect quantitative data about okay. exactly things like that. But if you look at you know where we are now in 2023, the current generation and the next generation of workers, what do they want? So uh, not notwithstanding things like flexible working and other things, they want to be heard. Mm. They want to work for a business with purpose. They want to know that what this business is doing is having real impact. You know, being a force for good as a business is not just a phrase. You know, mm. younger people expect businesses to not only not do any harm, they expect them to do some good. Mm -hmm. So how can you do well and do good at the same time? Well, employee ownership is not the answer to ever all of that, but it is one of the ingredients, I would say, of a more sustainable, responsible economy because and you're sharing that wealth and that influence. And do you, do you normally see owners retaining a stake in the business? That, that or is it normally hand it all over to them? Well, the it's interesting. Um, I'll give you three examples. Uh, Riverford Organics, who produce organic yes, veg boxes. Own, yeah. So Guy, who uh, established Riverford Organics, he had originally sold uh, just over 70% of the equity um, about eight years ago. <coughs> just very recently, in the last month, he sold the remaining 23%. Um, why has he waited that long? I don't know. You'd have to ask him. But I guess some of it is... You know, he and his family deciding actually there's not going to be any more family interest in the business. So now is the time to, to do that. If you look at Lush, global mm -hmm. yep. cosmetics business, um, everybody knows Lush and can remember the smell. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so Mark Considine, who's the founder with his wife, Mo, they've put just 10% into mm. not an employee ownership trust, a different type of trust, an employee benefit trust. Um, However, that 10% comes to life in an entirely meaningful way with their 20 or 30,000 people they employ across the world. So they've got all of those structures that we talked about earlier. They've got an employee council, representatives, etc. If you ask Mark now, he might say we, we, we could sell another 10 or 20%. It, the indication is he probably won't go any more than that because he and other directors have got now second generation family members in the business. Okay. So, um, so you can you can you can sell some but not all. You can hang on to some if you think that there's a generational advantage to that. Somebody in your family may want to join the business. Mm. Um, I. I'm sure many of your listeners know that um, the Sewell Group, uh, Paul Sewell has transferred uh, some of his 
equity into an employee ownership trust. Not all of it. So Paul is still very heavily involved in the business. Um, but that still has real teeth now in the business. They, they're growing a employee council and there are uh, there's a trust board, which I chair, and we've got employee trustees, three of them on that um, trust board. So I think it's all dependent on the owner or the owners and the business because there is no one size fits all. Yeah. That's the beauty of this. You can you can choose to, to, to size it according to what you want to do now and you can change it in the future. Are you seeing more and more of this? Because uh, 1,500 across the UK, given that this has been around for, for as long yeah. as it has, it's not, it's not a lot actually, is it? No, it's, um, yes, we are seeing more. And again, if you had somebody from the EOA here, they'll probably entice you with the fact that next month they'll be releasing their new stats. Okay. So um, annually they have a day called Employee Ownership Day. It's 23rd of June okay. um, this year. And they will release the latest stats on this. Is the take-up... Um, is it disappointing that it's only 1500 yeah at one level it is um but i always used to refer to it and i still do it's a bit like a minority sport mm. you know so it's something that the people who do it really can't believe that more people aren't doing it because yeah. why would you not do it there's no downside to this um i think one of the challenges with smes um and i'm going to be a bit bold and probably a bit controversial here is that smes often are not keeping their eyes above the parapet as often as they should so if you are if you you happen to hear about this you become immediately interested in it but if your circle your network is not talking about this you don't know anybody who's done it and your accountant is not mentioning it to you how would you find out about mm -hmm. it so you know it's the 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 drive to grow employee ownership now is through the regions so you know for many years when i was at the eoa we were quite focused nationally. So there's a lot of national engagement with poli with politicians and civil servants. And now, more recently, there's been a shift to the regions. And I think that that is, um, uh, has come after the benefit of seeing what's happened in Scotland and Wales. So much smaller economies, devolved responsibilities, and both of those devolved governments have put money into promotion of employee ownership. And when you've only got a population of five to six million people, which both of them have, it's a much more manageable um, uh, opportunity. When you've got the rest of England with whatever that will be, 55,000, 55 million people, it's much harder. Mm. You, know, you can't penetrate, for example, higher education institutions to tell everybody who's doing a degree, a business degree about employee ownership. It's just not possible. No. We haven't got the resources. Um, if you get another Riverford or another Richer Sounds, you know, doing employee ownership. Yes, the Times, the FT, the Guardian, the Telegraph will write about it on one day. Yeah. But they're more likely to fill the pages with stories about PLCs. Mm. Um, so it sounds like I'm saying, you know, we need more coverage, we need more media exposure, we need more professional services. We do, we need all of that. But really what we need is more business owners to think, first of all, to start thinking, what is my succession plan gonna be? And then going online and just researching, you know, what are the what are my options? If you researched it properly, you would find it. Mm. If you said succession planning, what are my options? You would definitely come up with it now. Because presumably the owner would get fair value for the business. Yeah. Be valued by an external third party. Yeah, you normally would have a th uh, an external valuation yeah. um, because you have to get approval of HMRC for that yeah, valuation, yeah. Um, which is only fair and good because unlike a trade sale, there isn't a, an opposite party who's challenging you on the value. Mm. So the owner has to have a, a, you know, a transparent approach to how do they get that valuation. Um, and some businesses, you know, the owner will, will communicate this very widely amongst all the employees so the employees are on the journey with them and they know what's going on um, and others won't tell them till the day it happens but they might just take the senior leadership team into their confidence to help them plan for it yeah. and there's no right or wrong answer there there absolutely isn't because each business is different and you might find that you know one way suits your team your client base your whatever mm -hmm. i suppose it it solves the problem of the equity doesn't necessarily solve the problem of succession in the sense of if, if the MD was stepping down, you still need another MD coming through the ranks. That's a really good point. It, this is ownership succession, not leadership succession. Yeah. And so, um, and and that's why, you know, when a business becomes employee-owned, it doesn't mean the day after it becomes employee-owned, everybody in the business starts making decisions. Yeah. Generally, you find nothing changes. 
you still have a managing director, you still have a finance director, ops director, what, however many other directors, you still have same lines of accountability, performance management's the same. Um, so if the major shareholder is indeed the managing director, mm. then of course thinking about ownership succession needs to come alongside thinking about leadership succession. So, mm. but again, you know, best practice would tell you most owners, you know, most managing directors, major shareholders should be thinking about that anyway. You yeah. know, you, you, there's enough evidence out there that that's one of the key failure points for business. Um, so, but you're right to determine the difference between ownership succession and leadership succession. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about another initiative which you're involved in, which which we're also lucky enough to be involved in, which is uh, Cat Zero. So f again, mm. for, for people that aren't familiar, do you want to describe what Cat Zero is? I do. Um, so Cat Zero is a local charity in the Humber region. Um, it's existed for 15 years um, soon. It was established by Jim Dick, who some people will know. Jim used to be the president of Smith & Nephew and um, is now the Lord Lieutenant of the East Riding of Yorkshire. Um, so the idea for the charity came back in 2007 when the Humber region sponsored a round the world yacht um, in the round the world yacht race. Um, Jim was uh, the lead for the project which was funded by the then regional development agency and one of the parameters that the council at the time and Jim um, insisted was that a few young people went on to the programme of the Round the World Yacht Race. So they did a leg and they were a particular type of young people. They were young people who were called at the time NEETs, not in employment, education and training. And basically a short story, they these few people went on this uh, experience and they came out completely transformed. So their, their communication skills, their self-confidence, self-esteem, leadership skills, team working skills had just changed dramatically from this very um, uh, absorbing experience. Jim being a passionate sailor decided he really wanted to see could he try and mainstream this as an idea to help these young people restart their lives again or even just start their lives and that's where the idea for Cat Zero came. So roll forward, Cat Zero has now helped thousands of young people um, and more latterly their families. Um, so these young people exist in family units, sometimes those family units are faced with really challenging situations, you know, either health economically, socially. So we're working now not just with young people on their own, but also with their full family. Um, we're working with veterans, we're working with young people with the help of children in need, for example. So it's a local charity. The reason it's called Cat Zero is, everybody asks us, you haven't asked me yet, I haven't, that's next on the list. Um, the reason it's called Cat Zero is because there's a classification of um, yacht or of boat called Category Zero, okay. which means you can go anywhere. So as a, if you've got category zero mm -hmm. as, a, as a marine vessel, you can go anywhere. So really clever use of that phrase, I think. And I yeah, think yeah. that's Jim and Dave and Danny who set the charity up, who came up with that idea. Because really that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help young people and those people who have either through no reason of, for their own making and not in mainstream society economically, um, is to give them uh, the confidence and the skills to help them go wherever they want to go in life mm. um, and help them you know be a meaningful part of the communities in which they live and, and how do people get involved in it from sense of if they are you know, not in education and training um how do they get involved in the program so we we run a number of different programs so we work with partners like the local authorities or the job center um, or the big lottery um, so we work with organizations who are either themselves empowered to manage those challenges um, or who have programs of work and we will then take referrals from all sorts of different sources once we've got a program running we'll take referrals of individuals to join those programs or people can self-refer mm -hmm. so you know we're looking for veterans at the moment for example you know people have left the armed forces possibly you know not quite sure how do they get back into mainstream work um, yeah. uh, and need some support um, but we take referrals from all sorts of places if you are a, a business that wants to get involved well we need match funding for the programs so we get part of the funding from the funders the, who commission the work but they never 
fully cover the costs. So we look for match funding from the private sector or from legacies or from, you know, philanthropic sources. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you want to give it a try, then you can take the boat out on a taster sale. You could use it for corporate hospitality. So tell and us, I think you missed that. Forgive me. The, go on. The, there's a boat at the centre. Oh, of sorry. Us. Yeah, the obvious <laughs> thing is there's a 72 foot yacht yeah. at the heart. So the programmes, do they all centre around? Not all of them. The um, the um, a typical programme with a group of young people would see us using uh, something called restorative practice. So that's when instead of um, doing things for people or telling them what to do, you work with them to help them develop their own plan of what they need to achieve to get themselves to where they want to be. And our our um, investment in that is to help them, to guide them, to challenge them. So it's high challenge, high support. Mm. Um, we go through a program which might be six, seven, eight weeks, and we take a group of people who don't know each other to build trust amongst each other. They assess individually with a with a support worker where they are on a number of measures. You know, it might be where am I in terms of my financial well being, or my mental well being, or my physical well being. Um, and where do I want to get to? And they, the support worker will help me identify what I need to do to get to wherever I want to get to. It will culminate in those programs in that group of young people going on a trip for between six to 10 days offshore, no cigarettes, no alcohol, no mobile phones, doing four hours on, four hours off shifts, working as a team in really quite challenging circumstances mm but coming together as a group to see what is what they are individually and collectively capable of. And doing it in that way where you take them away from the norm, so you really break the cycle that they've been in, and then they come out, it's almost like watching a, you know, a, a, a chrysalis going to a butterfly. They yeah. come out the other side, their wings flapping, ready to take on the world because they've developed for themselves that level of self-confidence, self-esteem, and they've got a program of work that they say, and they may have even done some skills training in the middle of that. They might have passed some exams. They might have done some certifications. And yeah, that's the program. Sorry, I sound really passionate. I, I feel I feel this is such an important charity for young people and their families because mm. I was on the boat last night on a taster sale and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but the um, police and crime commissioner was on as our guest because he's passionately interested in what we do because some of the challenges you know in a crime and justice perspective is to work with young people mm. who through no you know none of their own making they've ended up in family situations or or community situations which are just not going to allow them to flourish um so i think charities like cat zero where you're not just trying to deal with the symptoms you're dealing with the causes mm. You know, you're really helping people make a sustained change in their life forever. Mm. You're not just putting them in a posh suit and sending them off for an interview and giving them a few interview skills. We do do that as well, but that's at the very end. You know, that's when they're ready to go into a the work ready or they're training ready and they're ready to be supported into that next stage. And how long is the program? <clears throat> not typical. I know that you mentioned the six to eight day sale, but uh, prior to that, a number of weeks. It could be between six and ten weeks. Yeah, but then we also work. Um, across full families now as well so we'll work with families and of course the whole family doesn't go on the boat the full family situation is about helping families where sometimes again things have happened they've, they've become a little bit dysfunctional they're not quite gelling together as a group they're not supporting each other in the right way and it's helping them learn the skills to manage their family relationships in which we might have one or two young people who have been on the program. Mm, yeah. So you're really working with holistically with the whole group. And we work with veterans and that's on an individual basis. Sometimes they will be on the on the yacht as part of the program. We work with very young children through the Children in Need program. They don't go on the yacht because that's a health and safety yeah. um, issue. So yeah, that's that's the Cat Zero. Um, and geographically, where you take them out into the North Sea, do you? Where, where, where yeah, they go all over the place. Uh, Danny the Skipper's just had a group out. Um, they've been down to the South Coast. Right. Um, <clears throat> we do things like we do the round the world, uh, round the the island yacht race. We do the fast net race and other things like that. But they Brilliant. are fundraisers. Yeah. So anything we do with the yacht is to raise money to put into the programs. Yeah, so okay. we have this asset, which is the yacht. It gets used for the program delivery, but we also use it when it's not being used. So we're sweating that asset, as mm. some people would say. 
we're using it to generate revenues through fundraising that go back into the program. And businesses could book it for a day for a corporate day that kind of yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. So and that, and that might be a lot of them do. They do that because it's a, an interesting and different way of, you know, corporate hospitality or team, team building, building yeah, team exactly. building. It's what we did. We we booked it last year and 10 or 12 of our guys. Yeah, and it was the feedback was yeah. fantastic taking people from different departments that probably never speak to each other, stick them on a boat for the day yeah. and suddenly you've got no choice. You've got actually driving it and yeah or if you yeah. do drive a boat or do uh, sail a boat captain. steer a boat, steer a boat. Yeah. Yeah. there you go good job you're the expert um, I'm absolutely not the expert and if Danny's <laughs> listening to this he'll be laughing now good stuff thank you for that and so last last question um the podcast is called tomorrow's workplace today mm-hmm. so it's really about kind of looking forward as in business in the world of work as well so we always ask the guests if you cast your mind forward 10 years yeah what do you think will be different about the workplace in 10 years time versus today I mean apart from the obvious technology um, and where we work I know there's a move to get people back into the office but I think probably where we work could change dramatically yeah Um, I'd like to think that there'd be more listening to younger people um I think younger people in general are going to be the change in the future and so not just the next generation so the 15 and 16 year olds who are here now who Mm. are going to become the leaders of the future but the next generation the next generation um because i i if you take a group of young people and you put them together they come up with the most incredible ideas because they really have no limits and no boundaries Mm. to their imagination And then work seems to stifle that. So you go into work and suddenly you have a job description and that's my job. Mm. And I've got to stop thinking about all those other things. And what I would hope is that work can become a cultivator of all of that, those ideas rather than a depressor of all of those ideas because that's how innovation happens. Mm. You know, businesses that invest heavily in innovation, they invest really heavily in creating an environment, which is just like a nursery. Mm. You know, it's where people, you know, put silly hats on because they're taking on different roles and there's no limits to what they can do or think or say. Why aren't more businesses like that anyway? Why do you have to just, you know, why why is it the old style? We, we have this, st- if you asked a young person now to describe a business, and I've got two children who, you know, one of them said, I don't ever want to work in a business. And what do you think that means? Well, they don't know what that means. What they think it means is it's an office block and everybody wears suits and ties and mm. it's really boring. There's a boss no, that tells you what to do. And there's somebody that tells you what to do and you're not allowed to do anything apart from what they tell you what to do. And you have to stay till five o'clock every night. Mm. And, you know, you're not going to get the best out of people, are you, if mm. that's the mm. environment. So I think I'd like to think, whether it comes true, which is not really answering your question I'd like to think that actually we all become a little bit more like a nursery and we allow people to experiment and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and do things differently more more employee ownership of course I mean that was a given (laughs) brilliant Deb thank you very much for coming on